Welcome to Channel Journeys, the podcast for channel professionals that will enable and inspire you to create your best channel journey ever. Meet and learn from channel experts who share authentic stories of their channel victories, defeats, and lessons learned along the way. Here's your host, Rob Speed, a channel chief on a never-ending quest for channel knowledge and adventure. Hello, channel pros. Welcome to the Channel Journeys podcast, and welcome back to all of my regular listeners. Thank you so much for your support. I really appreciate it. This is Rob Spee, your host and founder of Channel Journeys, and today we'll be talking about a topic that is at the top of my mind and probably many of yours too. How do we optimize the channel in the new as-a-service model? This is really a challenge, and I faced this in my prior role at SaaS where we were moving from an on-prem to an as-a-service model, and it's something I face today at OutSystems where we have a 100% low-code platform-as-a-service model. So joining me today is a longtime channel and alliances veteran with an impressive track record at IBM, Microsoft, Red Hat, and Cisco, all of whom are really channel leaders. And now she's building a brand new practice at TSIA. I'm very excited to welcome Anne McClellan, Research VP of As-A-Service Channel Optimization. Let's dig into it. Are you ready? Let's go. Hey, Anne, good morning. Welcome to the Channel Journeys podcast. How are you doing today? Doing well, Rob. Good to talk to you today. Great to talk to you, too. And, and where do we find you this morning? I'm in Raleigh, North Carolina, in my home office. It is a dreary day in December. We're expecting a big shower here, but it's 70 degrees outside, so I really can't complain. <laughs> yeah, not too bad. Yeah, we've got kind of a warm spell here down in Atlanta as well. But by the time this airs in January, we'll probably be shivering in some cold streak. Yes, no doubt. Well, great to have you on the show. You're now with TSIA, and I don't know if our listeners, many of them may not even be familiar with this organization. I became first aware of it, I don't know, four or five years ago, and you guys do some amazing work. Can you maybe just start by telling us about TSIA, You know who you are as an organization and what you guys do? Sure. Yeah. And I think you're right. I didn't know about TSIA myself until fairly recently. So TSIA stands for Technology and Services Industry Association, and we are a research firm at our core. So we have a research team and we conduct research not around products or technology per se, but we conduct our research around what I would call practices. So practices in the area of driving the next generation in the technology and services industries And so we're very focused on driving practices that help our member companies increase their revenue and profit. And that really is our our focus. And if you think about kind of all the big names that you know of in the tech industry, they're probably members of TSIA, potentially more so in the parts of their organization, like their professional services portions or departments, their support services departments, potentially customer success is another major component of our membership. Our CEO, J.B. Wood, and our executive director of research, Thomas Law, have co-authored books. So potentially your listeners have heard of consumption economics, which is around the new rules of technology, or B4B, which is around how technology and big data are reinventing the customer-supplier relationship. Their most recent book is the Technology as a Service Playbook, which I really recommend, especially to channel professionals, 
and companies that are getting into all this as a service evolution, because it really is a kind of a blow by blow playbook that's highly practical around how to build a profitable subscription sales business. Those are incredible books. I just got to say, I, I remember reading those and, and just fantastic resources. Good. Yeah. And we do research around the various practices that we have. And so I now run the X as a service channel optimization practice. So the research that I will be conducting in 2020 and beyond is focused on the partner channel. And the research will be directed by the folks who join my practice. So as I get more and more member companies, whether they're what you'd contextualize as vendors or what you would contextualize as maybe a partner company, a company that participates in the partner ecosystem of the vendors, they will direct me and give me the really the view of what's most important to double click down on with our research team. So, so that's really how I'll prioritize what I focus on. And so you're in the mode of building this practice. When did you get started on that? Oh, yeah. So I joined TSIA in March of 2019. So rather recently. Great. And your focus then is X as a service, everything as a service, channel optimization, how to build or optimize a channel for this new mode of going to market. Exactly. That's right. And what's interesting is, and I've spoken with probably, I don't know, 50 companies, um, primarily vendors. So the initial engagement that I focused on for the past six months has been really doubling down on the vendor community and finding out what companies are doing relative to taking their X as a service business and driving it with and through partners. And what I found is companies are all over the map right now in the answer to that question. I'm finding that that some companies are still really devising their X as a service offer strategy. So they're at a very early stage and they're still primarily in more what we'd contextualize as a traditional product selling motion with potentially perpetual license models. And, and others maybe are building up their subscription practices, but they may not have moved to a true as a service model with their offerings. So they've, they're working on the financial side of it, but not necessarily have the technology side figured out yet. Others are building standalone businesses around as a service and keeping their traditional models kind of steady state. And others, of course, you know, if you look at sort of the pure play born in the cloud companies, obviously are on the other end of the spectrum. So they've got the, the model down, the product offerings are nailed down. The go, to, the go to market is potentially where they're trying to figure out, well, how do we incent the partners to do what we need them to do? in this new model. So they're on a, and what tools do they need to be successful and what enablement do they need? So, so they're in a, on the different end of the spectrum of, if you look at it as a continuum. I imagine though, that no matter what the scenario that you just described, you know, maybe born in the cloud or born on prem and transitioning to the cloud or whatever, they're all facing the same channel questions. How, what should their channel strategy look like? What do the partners do? How do we motivate them? Exactly. No, you're spot on there. Three common questions that I get from vendors are, number one, how do these vendors, if they are transforming from the traditional model to as a service, 
how do they make this transformation without disrupting their channel? Because the channel is a very healthy portion of their revenue and profit model. And then other folks are saying, well, how do we start evolving what we need to deliver as a vendor and not conflict with our partner channel and try to do things that they're already doing really well, but with these new offerings. And other vendors are asking the questions around how do we convince the channel to move off the perpetual model? What are some of the incentives that we can put in place to get them unstuck from the old way of doing business into this new way because our company is pivoting and we've told our investors we're pivoting. Now we need the channel to pivot, but they really like the old way. So those are some of the interesting questions that I get from vendors. Well, those are all great questions. We're all asking that. How do you, you know, as the head of this new practice area, how do you answer those questions? I don't know if you can share kind of the the making of the sausage as you're <laughs> creating this new practice. You have your own extensive channel experience. How do you start putting together the best practices, you know, in formulating this new practice so that you can start helping your members in these areas? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And I think to to the point of your earlier question, it's all around, first of all, what is your channel strategy as a vendor? So as you're thinking about these new offerings, you you have to take a clean sheet of paper. You can't assume you can take the old channel strategy and this do bolt-ons or um, add-ons or put new chapters in it to make it fit the old or the new offering set and the new go-to-market. So ideally, a vendor company will take a completely clean sheet of paper, retreat, really think about what is it that we are trying to accomplish with these new offerings and what are our roles as a technology vendor going to be with this new set of offerings? Because a lot of the vendors are rethinking their roles and rethinking, well, when we at TSIA, to back up a little bit on the TSIA model, because I'll be using this terminology throughout this conversation, I should introduce a few terms. So we use this term called LAYER, L-A-E-R. And it stands for, and you'll see this throughout the books that Thomas Law and JB have written, but L stands for land. So that is our selling motion. We know that when we do, you know, we're, we're really good <laughs> with the channel at the land function. We know how to close those sales, move on to the next one and close them, close them, close them. We're really good at the land function. But the adopt, which is what the A stands for, is about not just closing the sale, but assuring the customer is actually consuming the as-a-service content and they're using it and using all the functionality and gaining that business outcome value from the functionality. And then expand is cross-sell and upsell, whether it's the current users that you've sold to, getting them to buy more of your offering suite or more of complementary offerings that you have as a vendor, or cross-selling over to other departments. So going over to new users with the suite that you've sold to the first set of users. So cross-sell, upsell is the E, the expand selling. And then R is the renewal. So ideally, and the thing we talk about in the technology as a service playbook, you want that renewal motion to be as seamless and easy and a, really a no-brainer as possible. So the vendors, coming back to your question, and sorry, I'm being a bit long-winded here, but <laughs> the vendors need to think about across layer, land, adopt, expand, renew. Well, what are we going to provide as our differentiation across which market segments 
in this new set of offerings. And, and then therefore, what do we need partners to do in order to complement what we're doing in order to fill out the offering and in order to help the customers really receive their value? Once we've determined that, then we need to look at our partner mix and say, well, gosh, do we have even the right partners on board today that will fulfill our needs? Because in a lot of cases, and I'm hearing some companies talk about the fact that no, they don't. In fact, they'll leave their traditional channel alone and they'll go out and recruit new partners that are a new mix. Managed service providers are a very interesting partner category that potentially a traditional vendor may not have many of or may not have specifically built a program around. And now they may realize, well, gee, managed service providers are going to be really core to this new offering mix. So we should go recruit the best and the brightest managed service providers to fulfill our needs with these new offerings. So that's just an example, but that's really the next step is do I have the right partners today? If not, what do I need? Oh, by the way, where do I go find those awesome companies? How do I know that they're really good at what they do versus they're pretty new at it and they're just learning how to do it? So there's an awful lot in that startup phase just to get that right. And then you've got to think about enablement. You know, I haven't even bridged to the bigger category of how do we make sure the partners are actually able to drive adoption of my offerings? What skills do they need in order to be successful? Do they have a customer success function in place? How how well-skilled is that? Do I need to help them with that? What incentives do I need to put in place? So then you get into all the other obvious domino questions after you've kind of looked at what the new partner mix needs to be. Yeah, there's a lot there. And let's, I'd love to dive into the, the layer model. Okay. And this is something that I'm facing today. So I'm at OutSystems. We are all in on layer and we're rolling that out and we're talking to our reps and training our reps on what does the sales cycle look like? And, and also what does our customer services and delivery look like at land, expand, adopt and renew? And working on channels, I'm looking at, okay, that's great. Now, what is the role of the channel? What type of channel partner and, and what is their role at each of those stages? Mm-hmm. And I'm taking it that that's part of the research that you're doing and best practices that you're developing is, is answering that specific question. Exactly. That, that is exactly right. And I've done an initial, I actually launched a quick poll and we do different kinds of surveys at TSIA. Our quick polls are five question surveys that allow us to gather information rather quickly. We put them out to a broad audience. I did a quick poll around this topic prior to our October conference in Las Vegas, TSW. And the quick polls results came back. They were really fascinating because part of the questions that I'm asking are, number one, what's your percent of revenue coming through the channel? And I got really healthy results, like you would expect. At this phase in our evolution of doing channel sales, and back to that L, the land, a lot of sales, traditional sales, are coming through the channel. And 50% of my respondents were over 80% of their revenue was coming through the channel, which is fantastic. But then I double click down on, of that channel revenue, what percent is would you describe or characterize as a service revenue? Well, that 
over 50% of the respondents was less than 20% on that one. And some were zero of that less than 20%. So that's when we got down to, okay, and 20% of the respondents had 80% or more. So it was a very small percent had a lot of revenue as X as a service coming through the channel. So what was interesting was that question is one that folks are still figuring out. But the the land motion around as a service, I think, is still in flux for many vendor companies. And it is dependent on the offering as well and how the offering is used. As you know, Rob, there's all kinds of as a service offerings today. There's, you know, software as a service, infrastructure as a service, platform as a service, device as a service, application services, all kinds of services that are available now. And there's more and more coming out all the time. So the definition of the offering does have something to do with how the partners will play. If I'm talking to a company, let's say I'm talking to a company that's in the medical device area and they're selling, let's say, MRI machines as an example, but they're doing it as a service. So maybe they have a device as a service sort of offering Well, the partner may be physically more involved in the land function with that because you're selling to outpatient environments, to hospitals, and they need to be very directly involved in the land and assuring that the solution is installed and it's up and running and the customer knows how to use it and is trained on it. So there's a whole packaging around the land function, but it still could be sold as a service because they could add on whether it's new software components, whether it's additional shipping, additional hardware features and functions on that endpoint, whether it's driving smart analytics down for the customers and the partner to use on that endpoint device. There's just a lot around driving adoption and expansion that can also happen in that scenario. So as you look at land, adopt, expand, renew, I think it it is a bit offering dependent of how you're going to leverage partners within Lair. If we're talking about something that's pure software, and let's say the vendor says we're always going to deliver it, physically deliver the software ourselves through our managed service cloud environment as a vendor, The partner's role then becomes more around potentially a referral business or an agency model, and maybe it's more around adoption, driving adoption, being there with the customer to assure they're trained, assuring that they are getting the business outcomes that they ask for, and then driving potentially expansion and renewal. Now, those partner resources then are playing more of what I would contextualize as a customer success role. Versus like the big game hunter, old school sales people on the partner side. So it shifts the mindset on the partner side as well as to, you know, do we have the right skills on board in our company within driving that adoption, driving cross-sell and upsell and driving renewal? Yeah. And what you just described is where we're at, I would say, in many of our geographies. And we, OutSystems, we offer a, a application development platform as a service. And many of our partners, I would say, are those adoption, delivery, customer success partners. And they're providing some referrals, but it's mainly, mainly that's the services that they're providing. And we're trying to shift so that they can play a bigger role in the land. 
and looking at, you know, how do we train these partners to be more sales partners and can the delivery partners make that shift or is it a different set of partners? I think some can, but we're also going to have to look at new types of partners who can play a stronger sales role. Yes. And, you know, what you're bringing up, Rob, is an interesting dilemma for the partners themselves because, and I've talked to lots of partner companies and I'll be speaking to a whole lot more in 2020 around the fact that they recognize they need to shift. And so the mindset that they had in the past, now they're coming at this and recognize the vendors are not standing still. The vendors are moving and they're in motion and they're changing their strategies. The partners recognize that they need to get ahead of this that they can't just sit around and wait for different vendors to unveil, whether it's their strategy or their incentives or what the roles are. They now have partners to play. They need to be forward thinking. And, and that's why I recommend that partner companies read the entire technology as a, as a service playbook, not just chapter 10, which is the chapter on the channel, but they read the entire book because they have to build up a technology as a service company themselves. And we at TSIA talk about this notion of swallowing the fish. And I recently on one of my LinkedIn posts posted an article that was really good about Microsoft and how they have swallowed their fish and the transformation they have made. Because as I talk to different companies, I we grapple with in the conversation, how do we get the partners to swallow their fishes? Because whether it's to your point of your example, where you need them to take a bigger role in land or whether it's oftentimes the example of we want them to get a less emphasis on land and more on adoption, because that's really where we know the renewals will come easier if the customer is adopting. And if they're not adopting, then the renewal is going to be a major miracle. So, you know, all the partners are recognizing they have capability gaps on staff in order to be able to serve the customer needs around this new, it's more of a sales life cycle. Whereas before it could be kind of a sales event. Now we're looking at things as a life cycle approach. So they, they're facing a lot of challenges these days. So swallowing the fish, give us a quick brief. What does that actually mean? <laughs> yeah, good question. So the notion is, you know, you're kind of happily, you know, tooling along in your traditional model. Your revenue is growing. You've got this nice hockey stick of revenue. You know how to, the, the dog knows how to hunt. You know how to close sales, big sales capture big game, go on to the next one and the next one, the next one, which is great. But then when you recognize you've got to make a strategy change, all of a sudden you've got to invest in new costs. So your cost curve that maybe was also pretty steady state in the traditional model, and you had nice profit as you went along in your steady state model, all of a sudden now your costs are increasing and potentially you're taking your eye a bit off the ball on the traditional model. And oh, by the way, the customers are changing. So your sales may actually decline a bit or go flat. So your sales are coming down, your costs are going up. So you can't see my hands, of course. But if you imagine the cost curves going up, the sales curves going down, you've got this fish problem where the, the gap gets big in the wrong way. And then you've got to figure out, well, as I'm investing in these new costs as a vendor, so let's say I decided we're moving to X as a service, we're building new offerings, we're going to build a customer success function, 
We have to hire all those people. That's a sunk cost that we need to start out with. But then we need to figure out how to monetize that. So once you get to the other side of that curve, after you've invested in customer success and these new capabilities to get you into the as-a-service model, the idea is that your revenue starts to go up and your long-term revenue is going up too. So you've got this recurring revenue that is going up and dependable as well as new revenue and cross-sell, upsell, get, you get smarter on that as well. So that goes up. Your costs start to even out and go down. Once you've got everybody on board, you've figured out how to comp them, they're starting to be monetized. So you come out the other side of the fish. So this notion is you get through that bubble, which is true of any, you know, any investment, strategic investment a company makes, they typically go through that kind of a, the curve to, to swallow their fish. But that is how we've contextualized what these companies are doing during this as a service transition, the, the notion is you want to make that fish as skinny as possible. And so you've got to figure out ways to, what are they, they, they use a term, I can't remember if it's like making it a little more stealth fish or whatever, but you want it to be a skinnier fish. And there are a lot of interesting resources out there now for partners. I mean, I'm seeing vendor companies who are really investing in their partner ecosystems physically helping them build the customer success capabilities that they need, whether it's providing actual training, encouraging and incenting trainings that they need in order to be really good at customer success. Also helping them with the financials around building the customer success function. So there's just a lot of creativity out there that I'm really impressed what the vendors are doing. Yeah, absolutely. And, and as you were describing that fish, I could picture it because I've seen that in the book, one of the TSI books, or maybe it's in several books of that whole cost revenue curve as you're transitioning into the, the as a service model. And I think you, you've, you, like you said, it, other investments like channel investments, you see that same fish that you got to swallow. Exactly. Exactly. The partners feel the fish too. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. Great. Well, how about channel compensation? And maybe we can relate it to the layer model as well. How, you know, how do you incentivize partners? How do you motivate them and do it in a way that makes sense for you as a vendor too, that's financially feasible because that model is changing. Yeah. And I would, when I look at partner compensation across layer and this whole X is a service environment, I believe it is still in flux. So we, we had our really good set of traditional partner programs that pretty much every vendor landed on, and not to use the word land, but ended up using, whether you call them the heavy metal programs or whatever you want to call them. But Yes, classic three-tier. Exactly. A classic three-tier program, and around it were different certifications, and then you could get your discount levels, and everything worked, and it was like clockwork, and you could manage your dashboards and and know how much you could make. And, and so it was easy to manage. And this is another area where I'm seeing an awful lot of creativity. And to the point of what I need to do in 2020 and beyond, I will be focusing on research around the area of channel compensation and incentives and metrics. Because as we know, the metrics change, right? So we're focusing on things like ARR and you know, looking at also CAC. So we've got all kinds of new measurements to look at relative to recurring revenue. And the question is, if it's now 
smooth subscription revenue, are you going to, what, what discount structure do you put in place for layer? And then it also comes back to that question you posed a minute ago, Rob, which is what are the roles the channel is going to play? So if the channel truly is acting as a channel reseller, then they probably deserve a larger discount than if they're a referral you know, agent bringing in a good qualified lead. And so as, as companies are looking at that and also looking at how their direct resources are going to play across layer, what I'm seeing in my first blush, and as I've mentioned, I haven't done my research on this yet, but it will be coming. Keep your eyes open because this will be open to anybody to take these surveys. The interest here is really to understand across all of layer what are companies landing on as the best, most efficient and effective discount structure? Because I'm seeing all kinds of creativity. I'm seeing double comp on the land, meaning your direct people and your indirect are being double comped instead of segregating that out just to drive behavior, you know, because we know money and metrics drive behavior. And so part of it is you learn, you know, you build a habit of what you want them to do, and then you maybe reduce the incentives down into where you want them to end up. It's a question of incentive theory that you start to get into when you look at these. Also, do you want to incent around driving adoption? I would say from my personal experience, companies like Microsoft have been really smart about putting metrics in place around adoption you know, not emphasizing so much the land. Because if, again, back to my earlier comment, if the customers aren't adopting, then they're not going to want to renew. So it is really critical that you kind of shift from the land to being the important incentive piece to it being around adoption. And then some folks are looking at this cross-sell, upsell, the expand portion of layer and saying, well, that's more important because that's when we've really got them, you know, they've really drunk the Kool-Aid, so to speak, when they're drive when they're the customers are buying more for more users and they're buying more functionality. That's really when we know we've got a customer potentially for life. So they're moving the incentives over there. So your question is a very important question. I wish I had a pat answer. I'm afraid I don't. <laughs> <laughs> more to come on that front. Do yes. you have, do you have, you know, from, you know, your Microsoft experience or other experience, how you compensate on that adopt phase? Because part of the compensation for a partner are the services themselves. They're in there implementing, providing services to the customer. So they get that if they're delivering the services, that's compensation on its own. But are there any other incentives you've seen vendors provide partners to drive more of that engagement at the adopt stage? Yeah. Well, if you think about, you know, something like a consumption view. So if I own a platform and if as a vendor, you know, I own that platform and I, and this is one of the big discussions that I like to have with both partner companies as well as more so the vendor companies. It is really critical that the vendor companies in this layer approach drive transparency of data to their partners. Of course, they're not going to give their partners data to customers that they don't own. So you've got to build systems that allow your partners to have secure access to customer utilization data because the partners need to know 
that the adoption is occurring of your platform being a vendor when I say your platform of the vendor's platform. And they also need to know where it hasn't been adopted so they can continue to drive that adoption. But paying on consumption versus paying on the initial contract and ha- and the only way you can do that really is through, you know, ideally, and I'll just say best practices are around intelligent systems that whether they call home or you have the transparency into the analytics of what's happening from a partner to vendor and back perspective, that really is the best practice around it. Some folks have other kinds of ways to collect that data, whether it's screenshots or whether it's use of license keys and logging license keys. But ideally, you have a very detailed view of the analytics of consumption because that gets you to, are they using all the features and functions of my offering or just the, have they just logged on and kind of pinged that they're up? Um, That's not enough uh, to, again, drive that, And we all talk about business outcomes, right? The idea around as a service and getting a customer to a point where they are buying more of your offering and expanding to other users is that they are getting real business outcomes from your offering. And the way that the partners engage in driving those business outcomes and assuring they're being received all has to do with their ability to have that visibility to the data. So they need to see the utilization of the platform, but they also need to, you know, there are other pieces of data that oftentimes vendors don't share with partners that can really help a lot. For example, support cases, you know, as vendors, they often keep that information kind of within their own house, but the support cases and tickets can tell a partner if there are user issues. So if the users are not productively able to use the platform the way they thought they could, the partner then has data to be able to go out and physically help those users. There's an awful lot of information buried in support cases that may not come to light. And the partner can use that information to really get the customer to where both the vendor and the partner wants them to be for success. Yeah, I'm sure there's a lot of room for improvement there for that sharing of data. And what about in the other direction, partners sharing information that can then be funneled into the product management team? That's a fantastic question because, you know, the channel partner ideally has access to the actual use cases of your solution. So they're the ones who can articulate on the ground Here's how it's being used. Here are potential case studies. Here are potential customer references. Here are actual physical business outcomes. Even if the customer is not willing to be named by name, you could say, you know, large financial institution based in North America is able to achieve blah, 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 and really quantify those business outcomes for the vendor. That is gold. That is rich, rich information for them. Also, they... The partners can have a real sense of the product feedback, product requirements, services requirements that maybe the customer or the vendor isn't thinking about that the customer is reporting to the partner. Also, partners, they often know the lay of the land well in the customers. So they can not only know as org changes occur, 
who those new people are that are being teed up to take key roles, but they also may know some of these influencers who may not really show up as a top of a pyramid on an org chart, but they're really key influencers in the decision-making processes around technology. They would have access also to competitive intelligence in that they'd know who else is walking around in the customer. So that, that's one last thing. And have you seen any effective ways or efficient ways to gather that information from the channel and, and keep it flowing to the vendor? Yeah, that's a really good question. And this is not an area that I specialize in, which are, you know, there are some amazing tools right now that are out and available. And all of the time I'm hearing of new ones. And it will not necessarily be an area of my focus specific tools. But I am very impressed, frankly, with what I am seeing on the tools front, um, just anecdotally, on how companies are now going to the next generation of, you know, we might call them partner portals, but I think they're really evolving to become more true, like, uh, you know, the way the panes of glass and the interactive tools where you can truly share and unlock value for partners by having them share data back to the vendors and vendors being able to also share data back to the partners. Some of these tools are being, you know, homegrown, of course, by vendors. Some of them are ones that are coming out. I've seen some startup companies that have had some very impressive, you know, baking in automation and analytics into the tools. So there's just, there's a lot out there. It would be a daunting task to have to go evaluate all those. And that's not going to be in the work I do, but um, I know there are others who take care of that. Yeah. And uh, Jay McBain's written some interesting articles on all the channel tool providers that are out there. And I think he calls it, oh, we talked about it. It's like the, the fourth wave of automation is, is yes. all that channel automation. Yes. I think it's a massive opportunity for these tech companies to get into. Yeah. And so you're not looking into that, that automation area so much of what's happening from not a from a tools. No, not from a tools side. I will be looking into practices around it. So as you think about, you know, as I was talking about how all of this evolution is occurring between the vendor and the partner, where potentially could automation make things more seamless? I won't be looking into specific tools that bring that, but I will be looking into what are best practices from a practices perspective, hopefully that clarifies. And that that helps people understand what TSIA does versus other folks who are out there who are doing fantastic work around the channel. We're looking into the practices, not so much physical technologies. Yeah. So you're covering a lot of ground, a lot of challenges that that vendors are facing, partners are facing. When are you going live with this? When does your practice actually <laughs> launch? Good question. <laughs> well, I don't have a launch date. So my time frame will be early 2020. So if you go out to our website and look up the research practices, my research practice is there. So you can find us, find me on the TSIA website. And I'm in the process right now of getting critical mass members within the practice. So that's how we start up these new research practices. So I'm in that process right now and near the end of that process. Once I get to that critical mass number, then we'll do a splashier launch. I project that that will be like end of January, 1st of Feb timeframe, 2020, getting very close. So they've got all the material and we're just waiting for that, that magic number to be over the line. And then the launch will happen. And 
In meantime, in the meantime, I am kicking off various research studies. I will be doing a state of the industry research paper in the springtime around this that will be based on initial research that is being kicked off early 2020. All right. Great. So you mentioned you hadn't heard about TSI until fairly recently. How did you end up there? You've you've got a really, you've got a pretty strong, I shouldn't say pretty, you've got a very strong channel background with very well-known companies, IBM, Microsoft, Red Hat, Cisco. You've got the, the top brands there. How did you end up at TSIA? Yeah, well, that's a great question. And, you know, as we all know, being in the channel and being head of different groups that face partners, your life is somewhat crazy busy. I remember, uh, I think it's Steve White from IDC would always talk about how our hair's on fire, you know, and that was kind of how you feel as a practitioner. And I definitely have been in several of those kinds of roles. Sometimes we as individuals need to kind of do something that's a little bit different lifestyle for more personal reasons. And that's really where I was in that I needed something that was a lot less international travel. So needed to uh, kind of change gears. And this opportunity at TSIA, TSIA came up. As I mentioned, I was not super familiar with TSIA. I'd have a little bit of experience pulling off their papers and and surveys to use in some presentation material that I had to create myself and found it super helpful. So once the opportunity came up, I thought, huh, this could be a really good transition for me right now at this point in time. Right, right. Excellent. Well, congratulations on, on landing that. Well, thank you. It's a lot of fun. I'm enjoying it. It's definitely different than what I've done in the past. So I still, when I talk about vendors, I still say we and I and forget that <laughs> I hate to say you, <laughs> you and y'all. <laughs> so. Yes. Well, the challenge will be in for you. You know, you've been in the channel running teams and all of that. You know, you're in the thick of it and now you're on the research side. So the challenge I think is, can you live vicariously through the vendors you're serving? Yes. Well, and that's been really the fun part, I would say for me, because as we all know, when we're in a company working in our role, facing the partners and listening to whether you call them the business units or product engineering and the marketing team, and you're sort of, you've got your vendor blinders on and you're in your world and your head is down and you're not able to kind of look up and say, what, what else is going on out there that I need to be aware of that can make me better? Because you are so busy just trying to keep up with the partners and all the activity within the company and keeping your team on track. And the thing that has been so much fun, and I think what people will really enjoy about TSIA as we bridge into this channel practice is not just... The research. The research is certainly important, but we build a member community of like-minded folks who engage on the issues that we all care about. And our conferences are frankly the best way to get into a mode of you're going to step back and think strategically about what you need to do as a company, as an organization, and myself as a leader to be better. And as I've mentioned in the past several months, I've talked to probably 50 vendor companies. And now I recognize there's so much out there that together 
cumulatively, if we bring it all together as a group, we can all be so much better and take it to the next level. And that's really where the value of TSIA is, is being able to take the research, understand best practices, understand which things are actually moving the needle, but then talk to your peers, your colleagues about what are what have you tried and failed? You know, I'm thinking about doing X, Y, Z. Do you think that's a good idea? And the openness of the members with one another has just frankly blown me away. It's been a fantastic experience getting to know these leaders across different companies, member companies, software companies, companies that are in hardware, pure plays in various industries. It's just been fantastic to hear their stories and hear them share with their peers what their learnings are. So when they become members in your practice area, how do they get together? What, what are the forums for them to, to chat with each other? Yeah, that's a great question. So each of the conferences now, and we started this in Las Vegas, will have an Exes of Service channel optimization track which means there will be a series of, if I've got my numbers straight, because I just went through this with our events team, I think there will be seven uh, sessions that will be dedicated to my topic area during, it's only a, it's a very short conference actually compared to others I've been to. It starts on a Monday afternoon, goes through all day Tuesday, ends on Wednesday at noon. So there'll be seven sessions dedicated to access service channel optimization. In those sessions, our intent is to make them not death by PowerPoint, but to make them interactive during the sessions. So there can be questions and dialogue. And then also I have an advisory board. So I'm in the process of pulling that advisory board together. And those folks will be really the ones who will direct and advise the research and be very much engaged around the conversations as well. So those are some of the ways that the members connect that are very tangible and give them an opportunity to get to know each other and develop relationships that they can take beyond. Also, one other point I just thought of, as a member company, when you're a member of the practice, you also can do a member-to-member conversation. So for example, if you come in and say, like, like you mentioned, I'd like to get these partners who maybe are more services oriented, more focused on the land function. And can you recommend to me a member that I could set up a conversation with one-to-one to to learn what they've done and help me rethink what I'm planning to do. And that's another benefit we give to members as well as we will set up member-to-member conversations for you too. Mm -hmm. All right. Excellent. Well, that's great, Anne. And was there anything that I didn't ask you, anything you wanted to talk about or something we that I should have asked you that I didn't? Not that I can think of. Um, you know, I think one of the other things, and I know a lot of other people that, even folks that you've had these podcasts with, but it's also, there's a lot of writing on the, the web right now in general about the changing buyer's journey. And, you know, I think we all recognize that. We've all read the material and we all, have, I think, absorbed this, not just from a, we, we've read the material, but we also are living it. And we may be living it like a, you know, this time of year, my millennial kids are buying everything on Amazon and we get packages at our doorstep every day and they're just sitting home doing what they do. You know, they don't need to go running all around shopping in the craziness and trying to find a parking space. So this whole buying journey shift is really being driven, I think, by a new diverse customer base 
and the customer base is causing the vendor companies to respond and react. And it also needs to cause the partner companies to respond and react. And, and so thinking about the buying journey shifts and thinking about the millennial growth, and I think I saw some statistics from, it might have been the U.S. Department of Labor, how now the millennial population is the largest increased labor population in our labor force in the U.S., As we think about that and we think about how they buy, we all, the vendors and the channel and all of us who are trying to help these people need to really address how this new mix of people at the customers are changing the buying journey. We we in the past have been very much, I believe, and I, I, you know, coming from my own background, We've been trying to orchestrate the buyer journey and we would have loads of internal meetings around, okay, what are we going to do to influence the buying process? But what we have to realize is there's so much more out of our control now that used to be in our control in the old days. And we could apply the channel to that much more easily when we had the control. But now that the control has changed, the 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 shift has happened. We need to totally rethink the channel, totally rethink the go-to-market strategy, totally rethink how big M marketing is important and who's going to invest in that because of this buying journey change. So I think now it's less black and white. The how do we apply the channel and the partners to the buying journey than it used to be? And therefore, it might be requiring in vendor companies that they rethink their skills mix of who and the kind of skills they need to be managing the partner channel. So it's very interesting, and it's not a freeze frame conversation. We can't say it's exactly this way, you know, put it in a box and put a bow around it and say, go do it. (laughs) It's it's moving. <laughs> it's moving. It's difficult. We're, we're having a lot of conversations and, and reformulating our whole land of motion, you know, and what takes place before we land for, and a lot of work with sales and marketing on that very topic. Is that, is that also an area that you will address in your practice or it's another practice area in TSIA? Well, yes. So I will be really focusing on not so much the buying journey standalone, but the sales transformation that needs to be applied to this new evolution. So I have, uh, I'll call them sister practices, although they're run by brothers, <laughs> man, that is, <laughs> who are focused on subscription sales. So Martin Dove runs subscription sales. Steve Frost runs expand selling. So that's that cross sell upsell. And Jack Johnson runs the service revenue generation, which is that renewal business. The four of us are a team. And we actually recently did a panel at the TSW event in Vegas around revenue optimization, the revenue optimization team. And we focus on together sales transformation overall as you move to X as a service. And we have also together... One of the things I didn't mention that TSIA can do is we can provide workshops to companies. We're not 
a kind of consultant company that comes in and does a long-term project typically, which that's very, very rare. We, we could come in and do a workshop around sales transformation. It may be like a two-day workshop with some prep work and some follow-up work, but, and then we can turn over that material to the vendor, to the client, and then they can take it. And if they want to have another partner come in and do execution, that's fantastic. But we as a team can do a sales transformation effort with a company where we come in as a team and help a company rethink their transformation in this evolution to X as a service. I will focus on the indirect side and the partner side, whereas Martin would focus on the direct side. And then Steve and Jack would focus on driving expand sales and renewals. And together we can create a whole package for a company that wants to do that. Excellent. So, Anne, we need to wrap this up. But before we go, if any of our listeners are want to learn more about the, the service practice that you're putting together or becoming a member, how should they reach out to you? Yeah. So I am happy to respond to anyone who reaches out. My email is very simple. It's my first name, Ann.McClelland at TSIA.com. So you can reach out to me directly there. Also, through our website, if you go into TSIA.com and you look into our research practices, there's, I think, a contact form at the very bottom. So feel free to reach out through that as well. But would love to hear from anyone who wants to have a follow-up conversation. Thank you so much. You're welcome, Ann. So thank you for, for joining us on the podcast and happy 2020. Thanks. Happy 2020 to you as well, Rob. Best wishes for the new year. Yeah. And the new decade. Absolutely. That's right. Oh my goodness. (laughs) All right. Thank you. You're welcome. Cheers. Bye-bye. All right, guys, there you have it. Thank you, Anne. You know, TSIA does some really amazing work and I can't wait to see the research from her new practice. I'm especially interested in the role of the channel in the land, adopt, expand, and renew motions of the sales cycle. That's something I've been working a lot on over the past few months. And be sure to check out TSIA and the books that she mentioned in today's show. I've read a number of them, and they're really interesting. I'll have links to those books along with the show notes at channeljourneys.com backslash CJ44. And be sure to subscribe to Channel Journeys wherever you're listening. And if you're enjoying the show, also leave a rating and review on iTunes. Next time, join me for a very interesting conversation on disruptive technologies with channel veteran Dave Sobel. Dave, if you know him, he's the founder of MSP Radio, the host of the Business Tech Podcast. That's a great one. And co-host of the Killing It Podcast as well. Join me in a few weeks. We'll speak with Dave Sobel. And until then, have an awesome channel journey. Thanks for listening to Channel Journeys. For show notes and other Channel Journey podcasts, visit channeljourneys.com. If you liked today's show, please forward it to your channel friends and be sure to tune in for Rob's next channel adventure.